about 10 years ago, I took a group of recent college grads on a week-long trip to China. We did some teaching and some evangelism, similar things to the team in Bangkok, what we'll be doing uh, coming up here this next couple weeks. But along the way, as we did some teaching and evangelism, we went and saw some sites around the city that we were in. One random detail of that team is that it was stacked with super athletic women. One of the women on the team was a former college basketball player. Another uh, woman on the team was a college pentathlete. I know what all that is. Bunch of stuff in track and field, I think. She was very athletic. Uh, a third woman on the team, a sister named Erica, was the most accomplished of all of the team members. She was a very successful uh, track and field athlete, Division I in college, and had then uh, gone into bodybuilding and had won several bodybuilding competitions. Now, under normal circumstances, the uh, strength and athleticism of a mission trip team is of not much importance, except for the fact that that detail sets up a, a very intense and dramatic scene that happened one day on our trip. You see, one day we had a couple hours to kill before we were expected in one part of the city to do some teaching, and so I took the team to uh, this large uh, Buddhist temple right in the center of the city. We go into the Buddhist temple, and before we go, I give the team a, a little debrief before we walk in, and we talk about Buddhism, we talk about religion in China, and we talk about what we're about to see when we go in, and just some orientation, and so we go into the Buddhist temple, and I mean, it's large, it takes up a, a number of city blocks in the middle of the city, and we go around, and we, we spend a, about an hour observing what was happening there, walking the grounds, engaging in a few conversations, praying for the people, praying for our city, praying for the country of China. And then it was time to go. We had a rendezvous time and point, and we go and we meet up and we go out the gate and then we go out down the street and down into the metro. We're hustling off to our next ministry engagement that we had. And as we're going down the stairs into the metro, onto the platform, I hear something behind me that literally made me jump. It scared me and it stopped me in my tracks. It was a scream or a shriek or a yelp, something behind me. And I turn around and there's Erica literally curled up in a ball on the floor of the metro, shaking. So we, the whole team, we turn around and we hustle back to where Erica was and we gather around her to find out what had happened to her. And as we were able to talk with her and to process more, it became clear that idolatry wrecked her. The literal idolatry that we had just seen came crashing down on her like an unbearable weight. This, this young woman who was physically strong and spiritually strong became a sobbing heap on the floor under the weight of visually observing literal idolatry for the first time in her life. Erica, knowing the true God that we just sang about, God the uncreated one who created everything, Erica, knowing that creator God, saw people Hordes of people worshiping created things, little chunks of wood and metal and stone. She saw people worshiping those things for the first time and giving allegiance to that instead of the real God who was actually there, and it broke her heart. Delray Baptist Church, let me ask you this morning, how does idolatry affect you? When you see allegiance and priority being given not to the true God of the universe who created everything, but to lesser things, what impact does that have on you? 
Now, in asking you that question, I'm no longer talking about chunks of metal and hunks of wood and little golden statues, though that's true as well. No, in asking, I'm not merely talking about temples of false religion filled with statues, because even as we walked out of that temple that day, we were surrounded by other idols on the street. We were in a mega city, and there was idolatry found just as much in the storefronts of Prada and Gucci that we were walking by that were appealing to our, uh, our senses of, of, of wanting to worship at the altar of fashion and luxury. Idolatry was found just as much in the billboards that hung above us, appealing to lust and vanity that would have us worship at the altar of sex and immediate gratification. Idolatry was found just as much as the skyscrapers and the office buildings that were peering down on the temple with, filled with people climbing corporate ladders, sacrificing relationships and sacrificing ethics along the way, doing whatever is necessary to make it to the top that they might bow down to the gold statue of success. Idolatry could even be found in the proud heart of a short-term mission trip team leader walking around inside of a Buddhist temple, scoffing at the idolatry of others while ignoring the desires of his own heart that would seek fulfillment as he worshiped at the altar of Christian ministry. So I ask you again, church, how does idolatry affect you? Because it is all around us. Well, that's what we want to look at this morning as we start this new series in the Ten Commandments. As Garrett said earlier, we're going to have a new series walking through the Ten Commandments. We're going to take a week on each commandment. It's a little bit different if you're new, if you're visiting with us, we normally take a book of the Bible and a big chunk of Scripture, sometimes too much of a big chunk of Scripture, and we just walk through it together. And we, we sit in God's Word and we walk through it and see what it has for us. We're going to do the same thing over these next 10 weeks. We're going to take uh, little uh, uh, snippets of that in the form of the Ten Commandments. And this morning we're going to be looking at idolatry, of having other gods before the true God who exists. We'll be in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, as we look at commandment number 1 this morning. As we look at this, here's what I, I want us to see from the text. What I want to argue this morning is that true life is found in being exclusively devoted to the one true God. All right, true life is found in being exclusively devoted to the one true God. We're going to do a little bit of a different approach in the series by way of outlines as well. Garrett and I will primarily be, be uh, preaching with a guest preacher coming in for one of these. We don't have a ton of text to work with in each of these commandments, so where we might draw an outline from the text itself. So what we're going to do with each commandment is we're going to ask and answer three questions. What kind of a God would command this of his people? What kind of people need this thing commanded of them? And then how might we obey it? A hat tip to Ray Ortland, who put us on to looking at the Ten Commandments in this way. He says that the uh, Ten Commandments, each commandment does a number of things at once. It reveals something about who God is. It confronts us with who we are. And then it, it instructs us on how to live a path of true life. And so with that, we'll ask and answer those three questions. What kind of God would command this of us? What kind of people would need this commanded? And then what does it look like for us to obey the command? Look at Exodus chapter 20. We'll start verses 1 through 3. 
And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You see commandment number one as we jump into looking at at this first commandment this week. You see it there in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. But before we get to that commandment and ask our three questions of it, we need to to first look at those first two verses of chapter 20 to give us a little bit of context. The text you note begins with a conjunction. It's connected to what became before it. It starts off, and God spoke these things. It's in a, uh, a, a cultural context, in a context of the larger story that is happening here. And the context, very briefly, is that Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. You guys maybe know the story. They're enslaved in Egypt, uh, and, and they're calling out uh, to God. He hears their cries, and then through a series of ten plagues on Egypt, he uh, miraculously saves them through, through great circumstance when they when they kill a lamb and put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost so that the angel of the Lord passes through and those who are covered by the blood of the lamb are saved and every house that is not covered by the blood of the lamb, there is massive death. To where Pharaoh says, all right, get up and go. And Israel gets up and they go and they go out of the city. Pharaoh changes his mind. He runs after them and they find themselves at the Red Sea. And they're between a rock and a hard place with the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian army bearing down on another. And, and God uh, says, watch this. And he uh, spreads the Red Sea and they pass through on dry ground. This scene is the, it's the cross of the Old Testament. It's the Calvary of the Old Testament. It is God's massive, magnificent, salvific event for his people that all the writers after this in the Bible always look back to that. Remember Exodus? Remember Egypt? Remember the Red Sea? That's a God who saves. That is what God is capable of doing. That just happened in the story. Now they're out and they go through the wilderness and God brings them to Mount Sinai, where we are right here in our text, and he's going to give them the law. It's going to be a lot of laws. There's going to be 613 name that is supposed to evoke covenant type language that we are in relationship with this God. And so when he is about to give them the law, he says, I, Yahweh, your God. You see how he even personalizes it there. This is the God with whom they are in relationship. And he says, I am your God. The God, of, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God who's been there with you the entire time. I'm the God who saved you. I am the one God who exists. That's what Yahweh means. I am. It means he is the existent one. The God who really exists. And so he says to them, before he gives the law, he says, I am the only one God who actually really exists. Your God. And then know what he says next. Who brought you out of Egypt? Out of slavery? Now, friends, don't miss this. What, what, what is the point here? What is he communicating to them? He's communicating that he is the God who saved them. You, if you don't get this, you will misread the entire law. The Ten Commandments aren't given as a path to salvation and relationship with God, but as a fruit of it. He said it again. The Ten Commandments aren't given as a path to salvation and a path to relationship with God, but as a fruit of salvation and as a fruit of relationship with God. God didn't look at them in slavery and say, oh, you're in slavery and you're calling out to me? Well, here's a bunch of laws. If you could start obeying them and clean up your life, then I'll come down and save you. That's not the way God treats his people. It's gospel and then obedience. It's salvation and then this is the way that you now live. We will misread the entire Old Testament if we don't understand that. 
we will misunderstand our own faith if we don't get that point. It's gospel and then obedience. The Ten Commandments don't free them from slavery. No, they're already freed. The Ten Commandments are God trying to keep them from falling back into slavery. He says, left to yourself, I know exactly where you're going to run. Like a pig to the mud. And so he's like, I know exactly where you're going to go. So I'm going to give you these laws and these commandments because it's good for you. And it's what saved people do. Dear saints, you have to see this because this is true for each one of these commandments that we're going to look at. But it's also true for us. God calls, God's calls to obedience are never given as a path to earning his love. God's calls to obedience are to those whom, to whom he has already demonstrated his love by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And then we obey because we've been loved. Do you see that? We don't obey God because we're trying to earn something, we're trying to get something from him, earn his favor. We obey because we have it. Jesus saves us by grace through faith, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. This is why John, uh, Jesus said in, in John 14, 15, he says, if, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Not obey my commandments so I'll love you. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's what loved, forgiven, saved people do. So chapter 20, verse 2, it's no mistake, it's no accident that before God gives the law, before he gives his, his foundational Ten Commandments, he reminds them of their relationship with him and that they've been delivered already from slavery, that they're already free. So God's commands, his instructions, his rules, his precepts, uh, his laws aren't meant to help them walk with, with, the, uh, with the, the God who, who they have to earn, but, but the God who has already loved them and redeemed them. That sets us up well then to consider commandment number one this morning with that context of what he's saying and what he's trying to communicate in the thermostat that God has set there for them. Chapter one, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Chapter 20, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Question number one, what kind of a God would ask that? Answer, only an all-sufficient, all-loving God would ask that. Only an all-sufficient, all-loving God would command this of his people. Now when the text says, have no other gods, this isn't giving a nod towards the real existence of other gods. It's not giving a nod towards polytheism or henotheism, where you just kind of pick one god that's supreme among the rest. No, that's not giving the validity of other gods. He is the only real true god. 1 Corinthians 8 actually helps us out here in Scripture where, where uh, Paul is talking about the, the topic of idolatry. And he says this. He says, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So there, there are other so-called gods. But, but they're powerless. They're blocks of wood. They're chunks of stone. They're fanciful, fanciful imaginations. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're the, the inventions of men and women. They aren't the one true God who exists. And so God, God here says, you shall have no other gods before me. The before me there, it could, it could mean one of two things. When he says, you shall have no other gods before me, it could mean priority. Right, we, we'll use the, the, the senses in the same way in, in English. So it could mean a, a, a priority that, that you should have nothing else that is ahead of me, before me. It could also mean before my face. 
that you shall have no other gods before my face. Don't go parading your false idols in my presence, which God's presence is everywhere, so don't do that at any point, at any place, at any time. Don't have any other gods before my face. Regardless of which one of those meanings we're meant to take, it has the same force, that there is ultimate allegiance that is due and owed and worth only to one God, only to this God who truly exists. He is the existent one, and full allegiance rightfully belongs to him. And so I said, only a God who is all-sufficient and all-loving would ask this. What I mean by that is only a God who is all-sufficient, meaning it would, be, it would be a cruel thing for this God to not be able to meet any need that we have, for this God to not be everything that we need and provide all that we need for life and godliness in this life and in the life to come, for him to be a God who couldn't do that and say, you have to worship me alone. No, he asks this, he commands this because he is a God who can give us everything that we need. We need not look anywhere else. We need not have anything with allegiance higher than him. We need not give anything a priority higher than this one God because he gives us everything that we need. He provides all. He meets all the problems. He, uh, he fixes all the solutions. He's the answer. He, he is the one God who exists. And so as an all-sufficient God, he says you need not look anywhere else. And he's all-sufficient. He's all-loving. He's all-sufficient. He's all-loving. Now, most of our minds, when we think of Ten Commandments, we don't immediately go to love. But we should. Indeed, as Jesus is summarizing the law, how does he summarize it? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. So there's something about the commandments, there's something about the law that that, that Jesus and, and others, they locate within the conversation of love. This is a loving thing for us to do this. It is meant, the, the meaning of this is, is meant for us to love vertically with our God and love horizontally with other people around us. And so we should locate this conversation in the idea of love. And God calls us to full allegiance because he knows that's what's best for us. God in his infinite wisdom and his never-ending love knows that the alternative to worshiping him and him alone only leads to death. Church, God gives commands to you because he wants something for you, not because he wants something from you. You get that? God doesn't, we, we, we think, oh, God, God's giving these commands. He wants me to do this. He, he's, he's just trying to get from me. and get, That's not our God. God is giving commands because he knows what is good for us. He knows what is best for us. And he knows that we're going to do the exact opposite of left to ourselves. And he says, this is the way, go that way. Why? So I can get stuff from you? I don't need anything from you. Go that way because that is what is good for you and because I love you. Obeying God never leads to, 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 to uh, it, it is always a thing of love. It is, it is always his desire to get us to do what is good for us because he loves us. He's not trying to get something from you, he's trying to get something for you. This is why, if you remember in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus responds the way he does to, to his disciple Thomas. In a conversation in John chapter 14, and Jesus is, is talking to, to his disciples about how he's going to go uh, and prepare uh, before them and prepare a place for them in his father's house. And Thomas, he, he, says, he, says, he says, Jesus, we, we don't know where we're going. We don't know the way. And so this concerned disciple who Jesus says, I'm going before you and I'm going to prepare a place in the presence of my father. And, and Thomas says, we don't know how to get there. We don't know the way. And Jesus says what? John 14, 6. I am the way. 
I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He points the way because it's an act of love. He's lovingly showing them that there's one path to eternal life and true meaning and true joy. And it's through him and him alone. It would not be loving for him to say, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the ways. You can just as easily go through another religious belief or a, another ideology and arrive at the same place. That's not true because that, that, that's not reality. And so it's a loving thing for, for God in the first commandment to say, have no other gods before me because he knows there's no life there. There's no joy there. There's no purpose there. There's no meaning there. So God says that in the first command. Jesus says the exact same thing. How do we know how to get there? Jesus says, I, you go through me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There's one way and it's me. There's no other gods. Exodus. John 14. There's one way and it's Jesus. These are the words of a God who loves us enough to tell us the way and to provide the path. This is a vital truth for all of us this morning, but especially if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're so happy you're here and we want you to know that, that this is especially true, that, that, that uh, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that there is one path to salvation and it's Christ. And that's not something that, that Jesus said to be narrow-minded or, or mean. It's something Jesus said because he loves you and he doesn't want you seeking life in, the way that, in ways that will only lead to death. What we earn because of our sin is death. But the good news that the Bible gives us is that Jesus laid down his life for us in our place as our substitute, taking our penalty on his body, in, in, on himself, so for, for our sins, that, that by any of us, uh, by turning from those sins, by repenting and trusting in him, might have life. That is the most loving thing to hear. It's the most loving thing we could tell you this morning. Because all other ways lead to death and separation from God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God says, no other gods before me. Why? Because I love you. And heading your own way is not going to get you there. So what kind of a God would command this? Only an all-sufficient, all-loving God. Question number two, what kind of people need this commanded? What kind of people need to hear? What kind of people need to be confronted with this truth? Well, it's people who have a relationship with God but still have a propensity and a pull and a temptation toward idolatry. So the people who have a relationship with God but still have a pull toward idolatry, I want you to realize that in this text that these commandments aren't given to those who don't know God. Exodus chapter 20. These commandments are given to people who do know God. These commandments are given to people who are, in a sense, in a relationship with him, who, who are God's people, and God comes to them, and they, they've seen his salvific work. They've gone through the Red Sea. They've been called by him to himself to be his chosen possession, to be his people. He's called them. And yet they still struggle with allegiance. They still need to be told, don't have other gods. You know, one, one of a, there's another passage that puts this quite starkly. Uh, you don't have to turn there. You can if you want. You don't have to. It's going to be Joshua 24. I actually thought about this as I was uh, just reading Exodus 20 at the beginning of this week. Joshua 24 popped in my mind a couple times, and, and my first thought was like, ah, it's just probably random. It's, and then as I was reading commentaries and other books, every, a number of people referenced Joshua 24, so I was like, well, it's worth it to go there. Uh, this passage, it puts this in stark uh, kind of relief of, of exactly what is going on in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, 
but, but, but in, a, in a fantastic example of this. So Joshua chapter 24, the next generation after this Exodus generation is the generation that goes into the promised land. A lot of stuff that happens there. We don't have time to cover all of that. But this next generation goes into the promised land. Uh, they, they, uh, um, they, they take the land. They divide the land up between themselves. And at the very end of the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua calls all of Israel together, and he gives them kind of one final speech. He kind of gives them one final address. It's, it, it, he renews, they renew the covenant with each other of what it's going to look like to live before their God. Joshua chapter 24 Verse 1, so Joshua gathers uh, the, all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua says to the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now what he's going to do next, I'm not going to read it all. But from verse 3 down through verse 13. So from Joshua 24, verse 3 down to jo Joshua chapter 24, verse 13. He just gives them a history. And it's a history of all the stuff that God has done. You can, you can let your eye fall down the passage and note every time that a pronoun for God is used or a verb for what God has done is used. All right, so what I want to do, we're not going to read the whole passage. I'm just going to read, and I'm going to read all those things. I'm going to read everything that God has done. Listen to this. Joshua 24, 3 through 13. I took, I led, I made, I gave, I gave, I gave, I sent, I plagued. I did, I brought, I brought, I put, I made, I did, I brought, I gave, I destroyed, I would not listen, I delivered, I gave, I sent, I gave. 23 verbs of what God has done. The next line says this, verse 14, now therefore, look up, don't look at the page, look up, now therefore, what? He could ask anything he wants. Cut off both your arms. Well, all right, that seems fair. You know, like, he could ask anything that he wants, literally, all these things that he's just done for them. He just, he just said, everything that you have is, is because of me. I've done all of that. I gave, I put, I listened. I didn't listen to that guy. I sent, I, I drove. I did all this, I did all this, I did all this. Now, therefore, what does God want from them? Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. And put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. It's almost embarrassing, isn't it? After all of that, what does God say? Put away your other gods who have done nothing for you and serve me alone. Maybe a helpful exercise just applicationally for you would get a piece of paper or a notes page on your phone and just come up with your own 23 verbs. <laughs> what has God done for you? What has God done for you in Christ? What has he done for you in your life? And just list those things out and then say, now therefore, fill in the blank. What idols is he calling you to turn from? What ways is he calling you to say, after all of this, just serve me and put away the idols. But this passage does it, I mean, it gives us a stark image of people who know God and people who have seen all the things that God has done and they're still tempted towards idolatry. And another thing that I think that teaches us is that uh, being, being, uh, giving allegiance to God and being wholly devoted to him has nothing at all to do with him doing more in your life to give you more of a sign or proving his love in some new fresh way to you. He's done it all. The Bible says he's proved his love for us in Christ. 
He's demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this way, he loved us, giving his only begotten son that anybody who believes in him might be saved. He's done it all. And yet he still has to tell us to stop serving other gods, just like he did Israel here. And friends, it's not just this Old Testament people who need this command. I need this command. You need this command. So how does this show itself in your life? Now, I do think it's tricky as we turn to consider that in ways that we need to be, uh, be aware of this and have radar up for this because it's often subtle, isn't it? Other gods don't necessarily look like little gods and little gold statues. Idols don't have to be physical little things that somebody bows down to and worships, so that does happen in many places. One of my favorite things when we lived in Asia was to see somebody come to the Lord and then throw their uh, idols out on the curb, literally getting rid of them. So that happens. Many of you are from cultures where that happens. But there's other ways that this shows itself as well. And our idols are typically good things. They're things that are typically gifts from God but have no business rising to the supreme place in our hearts that we give them. Tim Keller in his book Counterfeit Gods puts it this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give what only God can give. An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Keller goes on in the book, if you guys have read it, you're familiar with this, to, to say that uh, biblically in the Bible there's three ways that people relate to their idols. They love their idols, they trust their idols, and they obey their idols. I wonder if that would be a helpful way to think through those three categories for reflection. What, what do you love? What do you love? A helpful way to diagnose this is what, what do you daydream about? An idol is something that we choose to love, something to which we give our affection and our love. Idols also make us feel love, make us feel special, make us feel valued. And as such, they capture our imagination. What do you enjoy imagining? If you have nothing to think about, does your mind drift to career advancement? Do you dream of that? Do you think about being praised for your looks or your athletic ability? Is it a relationship that you so desire? Does it wander to that next vacation? Do you think about the next big purchase or the next gadget that you have your sights set on? Do you think about your sports team, your fantasy football team, or some hobby that you want to get to after we leave church? What do you spend your time thinking about? What do you spend your money investing in? Again, there's a time and a place for all of those things, but we ask the question, what do we love, and is that love an inordinate love? Is that a love that is in some way outstripping and outpacing my love for the real true creator God who exists. Again, relationships are good. That's why these things are good things that God has given us that we can kind of flip the importance of them as God says, have no other gods before me to which you're giving this ultimate allegiance. What do you trust? What do you love and then what do you trust? Jesus is our true savior, but we look to other things to give us significance and other things to give us worth and other things to give us a sense of peace and security. What do you trust? It could be success in your job or financial security or the term of a specific politician or the state of a, of a bill or a law or a court case. 
And in this instance, the, the helpful question here isn't what do you daydream about, but what gives you nightmares? What do you fear the most? Is it your reputation? Is it a relationship? Now, again, there's a proper instinct in all of us to, to want to hold on to good things, right? I want safety for my kids. I want stability in my job. I want physical health for my family. So that doesn't necessarily mean that those things are idols, but they can be. Do they occupy my thought life to the extent that it's clear that I'm trusting that thing for peace and security instead of the God who exists, who is worthy of all my trust? And then even if my greatest fears are realized, even if I never get that thing, even if the thing is taken from me, can I still trust the Lord? Can I still cling to him? Can I still walk with him? Because he is who I trust and he is where my true security lies. What do you obey? What do you love? What do you trust? What do you obey? We have one true Lord. Jesus is the one true king. But whatever we love the most, we also serve the most. Anything that becomes all-consuming in your life is an idol that enslaves you to do its will. So who calls the shots in my life? Are all life of life's decisions based on your parents, based on your kids, based on your employer, based on cultural pressure, based on a political party, based on your own image of self and elevating yourself in the view of others? There's a great line uh, in the movie uh, The Devil Wears Prada. If anybody's seen that movie, Anne Hathaway's character in that movie is a young aspiring journalist. She wants to be a serious journalist and she gets a job at this fashion magazine and has this uh, overbearing, demanding boss who's always calling her and always uh, asking her to do things, and it just consumes her entire life, and you see her whole life kind of get distorted as she goes throughout the movie, and at one point, she's having an, an argument with her boyfriend, and her demanding boss calls her once again. It's a great line. Her boyfriend says, you know, in case you were wondering, the person calls you always take, that's the relationship that you're in. I hope you two are very happy together. And he walks off. What in your life might God say that about? Just so you know, the calls you always take, that's the relationship you're in. Whose calls do you take? What or who directs your life? Who do you obey? You shall have no other gods. What kind of people need this asked of them? We do. People who are in relationship with a God who's done everything for them and yet still feel the pull towards lesser things and lesser loves. Those of us who have been cherished and pursued by God and yet our hearts are prone to wander, to love other things, to trust other things, to obey other things. Number three, what does obedience to this look like? What does obedience to this look like? To illustrate this, uh, the answer to this, I, I want to direct your, your attention to one final passage, Matthew chapter 19. Again, you can go there with me or you can stay there in Exodus 20. Matthew chapter 19. There's a story here of a, of a rich young man who comes to Jesus with a question. You see there, starting in verse 16, behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says to him, you ask me about what is good, there is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. 
The young rich guy responds in verse 18, which ones? Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man says to him, all these things I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Interesting story. This young man with incredible wealth comes up to Jesus and says, what does it look like for me to have eternal life? Jesus says, obey, keep the commandments. He says, which ones? And Jesus starts at commandment number five and goes from there. What did he skip? He went to the external relationship, horizontal things, don't murder, don't commit adultery. He starts there. He skips over the first ones that primarily have to do with relationships with God. These next three weeks, what we're looking at, he skips over the don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any other image. Right, don't take the Lord's name in vain. He, he skips over that and he goes to the horizontal relationships ones. And, so the, and I think he does that because he knows that guy can't get past Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. He knows it. The guy's got an idol. It's his money. Jesus jumps right over that and says, okay, obey the commandments. Jesus, the, the, the uh, just master at these conversations, he knows exactly where this is going to go. So he says, okay, obey, obey commandments 5 through 10. The guy says, great, I've done it. He says, okay, one more thing. Go and sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. The guy says, I, I, I can't do that. The story of the rich young ruler isn't about money and possessions. It's about idolatry. And it helps us with the question of what must we do when presented with the reality of our idols? What kind of obedience can give God Full allegiance to commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. The answer is perfect obedience. And friends, none of us can do that. Jesus came and he said, I didn't come to, 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 to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus says, if you wish to be perfect, now we know we'll never offer perfect obedience. We'll all falter, we'll all sin, we'll all struggle. But that's where the good news enters in. We are imperfect, but Jesus is entirely perfect. The law of God is a mirror that we hold up and we see our sin and our need for a Savior. And we say, I could never do that. I could never give this. You see those two elements in the text in Matthew 19 of what Jesus asked him to do. The removal and the replacement. Jesus asked the guy to get rid of the idol and then to follow him. You see, simply identifying the things that fight for supremacy with Christ is not enough. Saying that we're sorry for having those things vying for supremacy is not enough. Trying to do better by your own willpower is not enough. Those things will play a role, but we must also actively uproot those lesser loves and replace them with a greater love, a love for Christ. Now listen, we won't always be able to get rid of the idol. Right? So this is an example. This guy had an idol of his money. Jesus says, go sell that, give it to the poor. Right? That's not always going to be the case. With, you know, if you idolize your kids, it's not like, well, go. Sell them and give them to the poor. And, you know, it's not always going to work out. Though in some instances, we, there are things that we can literally get rid of that are idols. Let me give you three 
quick just reflections on this or, or maybe, maybe directions, three categories to think, to, to, to think through. Take a loss, take a break, take a stand. All right, take a loss, take a break, take a stand. Now, we're not going to always be able to get rid of like the rich young ruler, but there are some instances in which we may need to take a loss. Maybe God is calling you to switch industries because of the idol that is so present where you currently work. Maybe God is calling you to turn down that promotion. Maybe he's calling you to sell some stuff and give some stuff away. Maybe he's literally calling you to do that. Maybe he's calling you to commit in some way that's going to be costly or to turn from something that's going to be costly. Take a loss. There's only eternal life to gain rather than being swayed by the pool of our idols. Take a loss. Number two, take a break. Take a break. Maybe he's calling you not to, not to, it's not a situation where you can totally divest yourself from that thing, or maybe it's not even good to totally divest yourself of that thing, but he's calling you to take a break. Take a break from social media. It's amazing how much the idol of self is wrapped up. And I, I put this thing out there, and then I'm waiting for the dopamine hit that's going to come back of the likes and the comments and all that kind of thing. It, it's, it, it's an idol. I'm going to take this picture, but man, I'm going to take 15 more because that does, it just doesn't put me in the right light and have my hair the right way, and that's an issue for me. Uh, and, and so I need to kind of, it's, it's, it's an idol of self. I'm going to post this thing. Does that make me look like a good parent? Make me look like a bad parent? I don't want to look like too good of a parent. I'm going to try to aim, thread the needle right in the middle so I'm relatable. But we have this idol of self and how other people are going to view us. And that shows up so much on social. Maybe he's calling us to take a break. Maybe he's calling you to take a break from that app on your phone that you have. Maybe he's calling you to take a break from your gym. Maybe he's calling you to take a break from that relationship that's bound up in codependency that you need to just take a break from it to get some room to breathe and to, 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 to reflect and to pursue health. Take a loss. Take a break. Take a stand. At other times, it, it's a restructuring in our lives. It's, it's a, it's, it's a, what I mean by take a stand is, is yeah, I, I, I can't really remove that thing and I, I can't really uh, take a break from that thing, but I'm going to engage in that thing in such a way that I am absolutely clear that Jesus is Lord and not this thing. I, 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 I'm going to parent in such a way, what does it look like to fight to parent in such a way that it's clear that my kids aren't my idol and that my entire life doesn't revolve around them, being an engaged parent, being there, being present, right? We're called to do certain things as Christian parents, but they, they can't have little emperors ruling my house. What does it look like to parent in such a way that we are crystal clear about what is and what isn't an idol? What does it look like to stay in the industry that you're in but be very, very clear, stay in the job that you're in but be very, very clear that this thing isn't king, Jesus is king. What does it look like to allow your kids to pursue a sport or an instrument or a hobby in such a way that we're clear that, yes, we're doing these things and we see benefit there, but this isn't Jesus? How do we do this in such a way that we keep our allegiances in line to where the one true God who only solely deserves all allegiance gets it? Started off at the beginning saying that true life is found in being exclusively devoted to the one true God. 
Church, I hope you see that. I, I hope we can help each other. If, if you're, even as you're thinking about this, and you're like, man, I don't, I don't even know where those are in my life. I'm sure that they're somewhere. Grab a trusted friend. Grab a church member who can help you think through these things. Just ask that honest question. Like, hey, do you see any idols? Do you see anywhere where I'm giving allegiance over and above my allegiance to Christ? And then if you're asked that and you actually know something, don't be like, no, I don't see anything. Like, if you see it, like, help, help us walk. Help us do this together. That's why we live life in community and pray. Just pray, God, would you show me where I'm idolizing things? Would you show me where I'm giving priority? Would you show me where I have other gods before you? Where I'm looking for something else as the way, the truth, and the life other than to Jesus. I'll end with one more quote here. I think this is Keller as well. It's been said that unlike our idols and our false gods, Jesus is the only God who, if you truly seek him, can really save you, and if you fail him, can really forgive you. That's true. Jesus is the only God that we have who, if you seek him, all these other things we seek, all these lesser loves cannot save us. They cannot give us abundant life. That's the, that's the realm of Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is the only God who, if you truly seek him, can really save you, and if you fail him, he can really forgive you. As we all struggle with idols and giving misplaced priorities, we know that this God is worthy, and this God forgives us, even when we fail. And he continues to say, lay it down and come and follow me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us in obeying this. God, there's so many things that even I preaching this that don't, don't even realize, not even on my radar, I don't even see them in my own lives, ways that I'm tempted to give other things priority, ways I'm tempted to, to seek uh, security and meaning through things that, that are never meant to bear that weight. God, would you help us? Would you give us a sobriety and a, and a self-awareness and a conviction together living as the family of God to walk in such a way before you that we would have no other gods before you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we're going to, as a body, partake of the Lord's Supper.